Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and I'm so pleased to have you with us for this conversation with Ayan Hirsi Ali. Before we turn to the conversation, however, I wanted to let you know that you'll notice a little bit of background noise in the beginning of the conversation, so I apologize for that. It's smooth sailing once you get through those few minutes, and thankfully, it will not prevent you from hearing anything Ayan has to say. As always, it's great to have you with us. Enjoy. Our guest today is Ayan Hirsi Ali. Born in Somalia, she is a women's rights activist, free speech advocate, and the New York Times bestselling author of Infidel, The Caged Virgin, Nomad, Heretic, and The Challenge of Bawa. Born in Mogadishu, she grew up in Africa and the Middle East before seeking asylum in the Netherlands, where she went on to become a member of parliament. She became an American citizen in 2013 and is now a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. She joins us today to discuss her brilliant new book, Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. Ayan Hirsi Ali, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you very much. We have a lot to discuss mm-hmm. today, so let's go ahead and get right into it. Immigration, Islam, the Erosion of Women's Rights. Let's start with immigration. In the past 10 years, around 3.5 million illegal border crossings into the European Union, nearly 6 million first-time asylum applications. 67% are men, about 80% under the age of 35. The overwhelming majority of these newcomers come from majority Muslim countries. 2015 was the peak year with more than 267,000 illegal entrance into the EU from Afghanistan. Previous high, 26,000. 101,000 illegal entrants from Iraq. Previous high, 4,000. 594,000 from Syria. Previous high, 78,000. In a sentence, an influx of young Muslim migrants into Europe. Ayan, why? Well, it's what you call push and pull factors. People are being pushed out of uh, the countries, the societies that they were born into, and those societies are failing them. And there's no economic future for these kids. Um, the states are failing. Uh, there's so much that's happening that um, Nino, if you and I were kids in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Iraq or Syria or any part of Africa, and we had an opportunity to leave, we would do so. So just just from the perspective of trying to understand why people are trying to get away, especially young people, I totally understand it. Sure. Um, you would want to get away from those circumstances. Now, 
while the scale of the influx is well documented, and I read some of those statistics there, and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy of Prey to read more, we don't really know where these migrants have ended up. Could you say a little bit about just how muddled the immigration system is in Europe? I mean, as I understand it, we don't really know how many people have migrated to Europe exactly. We don't know where they are. And we know that even those who are denied mm-hmm. asylum and told to leave usually don't. How did Europe get there? Um, they got there because um, the leadership started to kid themselves mm. that history had ended. Mm. Um, uh, Francis Fukuyama is a friend of ours. I don't think, I think he was totally misunderstood. Um, the Europeans have, and I'm talking about, you know, you and I are having a conversation within a context and the context uh, wherein we're having this conversation is one where people in the West are supposed to reflect on what happened in the past, what their ancestors did and apologize for those things. And so if you are a European country, wealthy, welfare state, uh, right now, the leadership, and not just right now, but 10 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, um, the leadership was in a mental space where they were th- reflecting on and thinking through what it meant to colonize other peoples in other continents. Uh, what happened during the Second World War, and specifically what happened to the Jewish population. So all of these reflections are happening at a time when thing, the nation states that the colonial powers had established are falling apart. Mm. So go as far back as say 1989, uh, everybody here in the United States of America and maybe in Europe celebrated the coming down of the wall but they didn't understand that when the wall came down, the nation states that they had propped up uh, with their dictatorships, that those would also come down. Mm. And that happened. And what that then led to is just masses and masses and masses of people moving out of where they were born and raised. And they were raised not just in the, uh, you know, to, to reflect on the lives that they live, but that there was something better out there. And the winner was America. Mm. America is an idea. The idea is freedom. I can be who I want to be. I can start life afresh. We were listening to American music, reading American books, watching American movies. And I think what we didn't understand back then was for people like me from the East to come to the West totally unprepared, Mm. expecting paradise. Because the propaganda from each set, from the Soviet Union on the one hand, from uh, the US on the other was come on our side. And then in 1989, that was gone, but the rest of us are in it. And no one is dealing with the aftermath Hmm. of what happened in 1989. 
Okay, so this massive influx of immigration takes place. I think in the book you call this the fifth wave of immigration, people coming into Europe. As this is taking place, we see a significant increase in sexual violence. Take Germany. In 2018, offenses against sexual self-determination, their category, rose 36% from 2014. In Austria, in 2017, asylum seekers were suspects in 11% of all reported rapes and sexual harassment cases, despite making up less than 1% of the total population. What's going on? Yeah, so that's the head scratch. I'm thinking, how on earth could you not know this? And you talked about, you know, the wave of immigration. There were four or five waves, depending on who you talk to. Obviously, the, the first wave of people coming into Europe um, 1945 to 1956, there were other Europeans. There were people who were displaced from one end of Europe to the other end of Europe, and they were coming back. They were coming back into a culture that they knew, languages that uh, they were raised in, the ancestors came from, and they were familiar with everything and everybody was familiar with them. They were seen maybe as the unfortunate people who were caught up on the other side of the curtain. But once the curtain moved, there wasn't um, a cultural, uh, a radical cultural difference to speak of. Um, And then you go from the first wave, 1945 to 1956, and you come to the fourth or fifth wave. I'm part of the fourth wave. So in 1989, you know, the Soviet Union and the United States of America, that whole thing comes down. We look at, we look around us, I'm in my 20s, early 20s, and we think this is as bankrupt as can be. Mm. And states that were propped up by either one of these two superpowers were failing and they were coming down. And most people were thinking, get me out of here as fast as you can and where do I go do I go west or do I go east now you can imagine the winner said go west so we all came west and here's the interesting thing we then come west expecting all the things that had been droned and drummed into our heads about the individual the rule of law equality between men and women tolerance acceptance of things that you may not subscribe to, but it's, you know, that's how the world is. And that's what makes the West amazing. And so when millions of us come in, in the second wave, third wave, fourth wave, what happens is there is a buzz. Hmm. Buzz is everything they told you about the West is just not true, Hmm. not accepted. There is discrimination. They discriminate against their own women. Um, and by the way, they actually profited from slavery and they profited from Jim Crow and, you know, you name it. So it's then possible for people coming from the East to come into the West, having chosen to do it as adults, and walk away thinking, how can I exploit this system in exactly the same way that I exploited and survived in the system where I come from. Mm. A a deep sense of fear, um, misunderstanding, 
um, I don't know how to explain this, but that is on the emotional level. I can take my book, Nina, and I can say, I'm going to just read you the numbers. Yeah. I can do that. And I know no one is interested in the numbers. People are interested in this encounter. If in that conflict between the Soviet Union and the West, the West won, then what did they win for? And here's the unfortunate truth is that the Gorbachevs of this world, the Thatchers of this world, Reagans of this world, they're gone. They're not talking to us about the values that they were fighting for. The people who inherited that legacy either don't want to know that it, there's something to fight for. We don't have people standing up for the values, but we also don't have people articulating what these values are. So people are lost in the West and they're lost elsewhere. And um, I call it the misunderstanding game because you come here thinking, I'm coming here for freedom and you have Reagan in your head um, or you have Thatcher in your head or whatever. And then, or, or your grandfather. Yeah, your grandfather. So when you come here and you think, but that's not what they're talking about. Mm. Um, they are, that's totally, they're talking about something else and they, they have moved on. And so there's this confusion that I think the West in communicating with the rest of the world is creating where I can, I can write a book like this. I can talk to you about, please don't make the mistakes that Europe is making uh, and so on. But it's not just Europe, it's the Western narrative. Yeah. It, what do you stand for? What are the values? Uh, what are you going to fight for? Remember, people like me come from societies that are used to uh, violence, pain. Uh, violence, being the strongest in the group, that's the only thing that you have. Mm. And if you have Westerners coming in and telling you, like, put down your weapons, put down... You, that attitude of aggression that you have and they don't give you an alternative support mm. you think this is literally what people are saying it's to hell with them yeah and that's why i think uh, the chinese communist party the russians i think that's why they are going to take the 21st century because western leaders have decided that they're going to go woke they're going to play this game of which the Europeans have done and it didn't work. And maybe the subtext of this book is you said it was going to work. We will, there were five waves. The first wave of immigrants, I, I, please read chapter two. Um, this is 1945. They were mainly Europeans. They were the people who were in Europe and the war ended and they found themselves on the other side of the curtain and they come back in. There really is no cultural difference to speak of. Right. But the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth week, there is. And that takes us all the way back to at least 1960, maybe 1965. So let's say between 1965 and now, Western leaders have never answered the question what exactly are the values 
that we should be fighting for. Mm. Meaning those people who are voting with their feet, who are coming here, who are coming to the West. Towards the end of this podcast, I'd like to return to that point full speed and just ask a very simple question. Has the West lost its courage? But we'll get to that in a little. First, this fifth wave, if I understand you properly, fourth or fifth wave, a big difference here. Previous mm-hmm. waves, um, there's not much of a culture shock, right? It's Europeans coming to Europe. Here with these fourth and fifth waves, we have a big culture shock. Young men and women coming from Iraq, coming from Syria, coming from Afghanistan, these predominantly Muslim societies. And they come here and they see women which by, uh, by their lights are scantily clad. They're not walking around with a male guardian. And this is wrong. And their culture says something must be done about this and to them. Is that part of what's explaining this increase in the sexual violence? It is part of it because, and here's why people ask me, why do you focus only on Muslims? You know, why not the Cubans and Argentinians and the Serbs and, you know, all these people are immigrants. They also perpetrate um, sexual offenses. Uh, Why is your book not about that? I acknowledge all of that, but the reason why I make this just about that encounter is, A, is the scale. Uh, The largest number of people who are going to come in and who have been coming in since the 1970s and we're in 2021 and beyond the next 20 or 30 years, they will be coming from Muslim majority countries, whether Europe likes it or not. And what is different about Muslim majority countries, Muslim majority mindset is that they once were an imperial power as well. Mm. And the Europeans invaded them and humiliated them. And that's going to be set right one day. And there are, if you go and listen and read, listen to the sermons, read what the radical Islamists, what their intellectual output is, what they're giving to the young people. They're saying Europe or Europeans think they conquered us, but wait a second, we're going to conquer them. We're going to have more children through immigration, but we're also going to have immigration and, you know, having more children, that's not enough. We're going to insist that these are our values. So the kids from kindergarten and beyond are taught This is who you are. This is what your identity is in terms of values. And this encounter is happening where the radical minority, and I really want to emphasize the word minority. I don't think that a majority of Muslims subscribe to this thing, but a minority of leadership is telling them, this is who you are. This is what your identity is. And in that encounter, if European leaders and then more broadly, Western leaders are not having, they don't have a set of values and ideas that for them is a red line, they'll be run over. Yeah. So this is a pretty dire warning to Europe, right? There is a red line, you will get run over. Yeah. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, five stages of dying, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, 
acceptance. According to you, Europe is stuck in a stage of denial. Explain that. It's the gridlock that Americans understand where, you know, we have a two-party system in the United States of America and they say, okay, they can't make their minds up. America's horrible because they can't make their minds up. You know what? There are moments when you think it's actually a good thing that you mm. can't make your mind up because like right now, if I listen to some of the things that are being proposed, I think, heavens, thank <laughs> God. <laughs> for gridlock yeah. but one thing that the Europeans uh, European leadership it's, it's not the populations but the leadership they've been able, in, unable to come together and make their minds up about is immigration from the countries that they've colonized previously and how to deal with those countries and not just people coming from there and coming into Europe but Europe's relationship with those countries, um, total gridlock. And by the time they figure out what policy they're going to put forth, circumstances will have completely hijacked them. Hmm. Because you take a continent like Africa, now a billion people strong, with most of the population under the age of 30. If things don't go the way these nation states are supposed to work, all of these people will want to come to Europe. The same applies to the Middle East, the same applies to Southern, um, let me say, um, South Asia. If you take those numbers and you place them in Europe and the Europeans haven't quite figured out a system of acculturating them, making them European, which is what they did during the second and maybe slightly the third wave, the second wave is an interesting wave because then it was assumed you come to Europe because you're already European, whether you come from Bangladesh and Pakistan or whether you come from Indonesia or whether you come from Algeria. There was an assumption if you go to France, if you go to England, if you go to the Netherlands, you are subscribed. That's how they live. That's how people are. So the, there's actually, I think, a mind trick that's being played on the European leadership. But hmm. after the third wave, it, it, it stops there. Hmm. The Europeans stop selling their value. They, they sell the welfare state. Come here because you can enjoy free housing, free public health, free education, free, 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 this, that, and the other. But they never got to the point of saying what makes us different from you guys in Africa, from you guys in South Asia, from you guys in the Middle East. Why are we having less wars? Why are we having less bloodshed? Why do we have a society where we worry more about cardiovascular mm -hmm. and I don't know, cancer and whatever it is? So age-related illnesses versus your life, uh, the length of your life being cut short at your 30s and 40s. Sure. Why does that happen? What what is what is what is the magic word? That's they weren't promoting those things. Yeah. And eighty nine came, the wall came down. The confrontation between all in the east and the west fell, and now here we are, hmm. and and we are in our own societies struggling within ourselves about who. I'm using the collective our possessive in terms of America, which is who are we? I mean, yeah. 
the, these people on the left, they're going woke and then all of these things. And so do we even have any amount of energy and time left to talk to the rest of the world? Yeah. And that's what Europe is going. So I don't want to judge European leaders harshly, yet I want to. Well, maybe I'll do it for you. But uh, <laughs> one of the ways uh, Europe sustains this state of denial, and specifically when it comes to this phenomenon, you detail so well in Prey. One of the ways they sustain the state of denial, you write, is by dismissing honest critics as bigots. It's the easiest way to stop the conversation today, right? You're a bigot. Anything you say must be bigoted. We don't need to hear from you. Has this been happening with Prey, Ayan? Um, it has been happening with Prey. It happened with Heretic. It, ha my it happened with Grammar. It happened with Dinfield. It happens all the time. I'm so used to it that I think uh, when you ask that question, uh, if you look as young as you do, I think, oh, he doesn't know any better. I have to explain what's been happening since 2001 when I got into this thing. Uh, if you were to look older, I would ask, where have you been? <laughs> so it, it's, it's been an ongoing thing. To be honest with you, it's been an ongoing thing. And, you know, you talk to uh, the man who employed me at the American Enterprise Institute in 2006, when I made that move from Europe to America. And I was full of enthusiasm. It was America's different. Because these Europeans, they, they are just lost. They're stuck in this um, uh, mud and muddy place where they want to atone for the past, but they also want to be modern. Hmm. They, um, they sort of can't make their minds up about who they are. Uh, we would have conversations about trying to assimilate Muslim minorities into Dutch society, French society, German society, Scandinavian society, uh, I would be underslept, uh, exhausted, and sitting in these chambers with these people and saying, let's talk about the values of Germany. You have a Turkish minority. You have been trying your best for years and years. Now we're talking about the second generation to assimilate them into what is German. And these people would laugh and tell me, well, what is German? Uh, and then they would talk about beer and sausages. And just imagine that, beer and sausages. They would say, do you want us to sell beer and sausages? And it's like, is that your value system? Is that really what you want? Um, and I found that across Europe. Um, in France, it would be about eating uh, frogs and snails and in Sweden um, same thing beer and this that and the other and it would be just can we get down to the basics and there was this huge reluctance to do that yeah. and even with the Dutch they would say what do you want us to talk about dikes they just didn't um, if you, t if you go from the first wave to the fifth wave of immigrants, um, I think it is true, unlike America, um, that European societies were not prepared uh, for this kind of immigration, that they wanted people to come. If, if, 
if if they you know if people came uh, from God knows where because they were pushed out of their countries, civil war, economic despair, uh, they wanted the people to come in um, completely prepared for the societies that they were getting into. Right. And that didn't happen. Yeah. And that was a terrible, terrible encounter in the sense that the expectations of the immigrants, the expectations of the host society just didn't align. And it's like, it's like being trapped in a terrible marriage yeah. uh, because people have been given citizenship. They've been allowed to stay. They've been allowed to have children. They've been allowed to think of themselves as part of the society that's receiving them. And yet that society is telling them over and over again, if you want to belong, you have to absorb the unwritten, uh, uncodified, in other words, not explicit norms of living with one another. Um, a lot of people are having a hard time with that. And so they exclude themselves. They, they mm. go and form their own, um, I don't want to use the word ghetto, but there's no escaping it. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Uh, just seek the comfort of hanging out with people who understand who you are and what you are. Yeah. And uh, Europeans from at least the 1960s to today, they missed that amazing opportunity where they could have made those people who voted with their feet to come to Europe, they could have Europeanized them, mm -hmm. and they didn't. Yeah. Returning briefly to this theme of denial, if someone were to, I don't, I don't know, wake up out of a coma, maybe they just don't pay much attention to, to anything that goes on overseas, and they hear about what you detail and pray, this dramatic mm -hmm. increase in sexual violence, they would say, oh, why but the feminists are all over this. And yet you write, yeah. quote, a question I have often asked myself is why there has not been a feminist outcry about the increase in sexual violence against women that I have described. End quote. Ayan, you ask yourself that question and I'll ask you too. Why no outcry from the feminists? Three reasons. One, the feminists in Europe and in America um, have a list of priorities. And I think the most pressing priority right now for the feminists or femin what is left of feminism is to shatter the glass ceiling. It's to have a president of the United States who's female. Mm -hmm. It's to uh, have board, a CEO, board, you know, these big corporations uh, have at least 50% of them to be female. It is, uh, you know, we are talking about a reality and a struggle, and I'm, I'm just like I really don't know, but it 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 is it's that like like that's the fast set, like that's where the priority is right now. Where are the women engineers? Why are they not in STEM? Uh, why are these uh, fields and why why are women underrepresented? 
And so there's a lot of feminist energy going there because it's the priority. The second is about balancing uh, home, you know, being a mother, being a wife, being pregnant, being all of those things that affect women more than they affect men. Um, uh, fighting for the same wages. So there's, a, there's another, that's a second priority. And there's a subset of feminists who are dedicated to, um, to getting that, that job done. We want to make as much money as men do. Uh, we want the men to do the dishes. We want them to put the babies to bed. We want them to participate in the household stuff and um, maybe some of it is going to be between the husband and wife maybe some of it is going to be done by the government which is the european way by the way uh, where i sometimes go to a point i was like are you married to your husband or are you married to the government <laughs> um, i know you laugh but it is who the hell is going to take care of your kids yeah and so are you going to use tax care money for uh, childcare, or are you going to work it out with your partner? You know, it's. And then the third wave, or the third subset of feminists of 2021, they're woke. They're crazy. I, I and I don't use that word lightly. I'm not trying to be funny or anything like that. It's actually quite tragic. Five, four years ago, I thought the whole thing was when you talk about microaggression stuff like that. I mean, I thought that was hilarious. Today, I don't. Uh, so there is a, a subset of feminists who want uh, to be woke, uh, subject for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but there's no subset of feminists who are saying, let's prioritize what's happening on a global level, what the unintended consequences are of globalization the, for women. Yeah. Unintended consequences of immigration for women. Yeah. Um, there are, there's almost no one who's taking this from just having those conversations at your dinner table to the level of activism. Mm. And I, I, I'm, I'm making an attempt at the book to do that. And in some ways, I really hope to unite working class white women in the neighborhoods where they can't leave with the interests of immigrant women who are subjected to the same kind of misogyny mm. that white women suffer in the public space, but they, the immigrant women suffer in the private space. And maybe those two groups of women could actually be the starting point for the next serious wave of feminism. Mm. Like really serious. Yeah. It's a class thing as much as it is anything else. Mm. Um, let's talk about the police. Many in America are worried about police brutality. In Europe, however, they seem to be experiencing a different sort of problem, at least when it comes to addressing the problems you identify in prey. The justice system in police seem too weak. Can you explain what's going on there? Yes. <laughs> I'll say you have to accept a difference between Europe and America. America is and has been um, a land of immigration, immigrants, experiments and experimentation, social mobility, 
it's this crazy mass of land where you say, you know, don't care who you are, where you come from, come in and take part in this. Um, that's American. Mm-hmm. Europe is Europe, uh, every single country has its own traditions and customs that have been around for centuries, millennia. And so if you want to change things in America, things change quickly. Mm. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the two-party system. I'm a huge fan of the arrangement that we have in America. I know everybody's in despair. Oh, we are so divided. Oh, it's all over. Uh, No, that's not the case. The system in America is set to withstand shocks. The 2016 shock, the 2020 shock, uh, powers divided along. uh, uh, So the the division of power between the three, uh, that's actually real. Um, Europeans are different. They've been told over and over and over again, you can have the safety, the predictability of whatever your national or tribal state is. But they also want to open up to the world in a way that they're not colonizing the world. Mm-hmm. So they're on equal footing with Zimbabwe and Bangladesh and God help any part of the Commonwealth. And they have those traditions of this is how we do things, but this is actually how we don't want to. So Europe is a different place. And the question over and over again is how fast will Europe modernize? Mm. How fast will they catch up with things and adapt? So you look at a phenomenon like Brexit. I think that gives the Brits this opportunity to catch up with the rest of the world, to catch up with America, Hmm. uh, to catch on to who's calling the shots here, China, how are we going to react to Russia? But then they make national decisions about those things. EU members are forced into this corset where they're being told Brussels is going to make, is going to have the last word on it. And you know what? It's not in my place to say this because I know I'm getting into trouble by even even voicing this stuff, even saying this stuff. Um, Once upon a time, Holland went out and colonized peoples and they're good uh, with water. They're good at sailing. They're good at dominating that part of the world, which is a big part of the world. Mm -hmm. But right now they first have to answer to the EU 27 that's left. Uh, that's the kind of thing. These are developments that I think are too complex to, I would warn anybody from ever taking, which is, I'm, I'm just not going to tell you what you want me to tell you, which is where is this fallout? You know, what's gonna land? I don't know. Hmm. I, I, I can tell you European populations are aging the number of people who remember what Europe is about are in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s. The young generation and, and their leadership uh, I, in Europe, uh, 
many of them have actually come here and moved elsewhere. Hmm. And their neighbors talk about proximity. Their neighbors, it's the continent of Africa. It's the Middle East. It's South Asia. Uh, I, I think most of us will just be observers, not players. Hmm. We'll be looking at these things. Let's see how this unfolds. Shockwaves. You mentioned America's political system has proven remarkably resilient. I want to ask you about a potential shockwave uh, that strikes me reading this book. You cite the political scientist Valerie Hudson, who warned that societies with disproportionate numbers of young unmarried men are less stable and more violent. Is America heading that way? Uh, yes and no. When so first of all, no society has any, um, uh, let's say, there's no society that has kind of said, oh, between this and that time, we're going to have a large portion of young men between the ages of 15 and 45. But if you look at oh, 35, if you look at um, the American institutions, there's a way of dealing with it and it's called a military. And we're going to have mm. in America a big fight about what exactly it is that the military does. So if the military is not going to be deployed to go wherever, then at least the military can be called upon to say, listen, we have this youth bulge. Um, there's a lot of crime going on and sexual violence and all the stuff that young men between the ages of 15 and 35 do, we have institutions that counter that. We, we know what to do with that. And that's why I keep contrasting it with Europe. In Europe, the word military, it's either a joke or it's an insult hmm. or it's historically loaded because the military back then went and rounded up innocent people who happened to be Jewish or gay or um, people they didn't want and the military was used to help in the process of genocide. And so understandably, Europeans don't have the same attitude. I'm not counting the Brits. Sure. They don't have the same attitude to their militaries as Americans do. Hmm. If I read J.D. Vance's book, and he says it was my grandmother and a grandmother represented tradition. And then when tradition wasn't there, wasn't strong enough, grandmother was going old and frail, which is exactly what happens to humanity. There were, there were the Marines. So America can use the military as an institution to do more than just go to war. Hmm. And in Europe, I don't think we have that system or some countries may or may not. I would say as an advisor in this book, as part of the integration and assimilation process, bring that back. Learn from America, learn from Israel, learn from all of these other places, if they're open to it. But right now, Europeans are not open to um, learning from America. America is still the, the country that broke away the uh, fat, ugly, um, incoherent people, uh, Americans are still uncouth and you name it. And so as long as that's the attitude to America, but then when things go wrong, oh dear America, come and help us out. Yeah. 
as long as that carries on, and when I say that, I don't mean, I mean, there's, there's one leader who will appreciate and it's another leader, but as long as that's what you churn out uh, in uh, the classroom, in the media, in soap operas, in, you know, the American is always, oh, that terrible guy who doesn't know how to hold his glass. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think they have to revise that. And and Americans maybe shouldn't even, there are a lot of Americans who think maybe we should look into Europe. Hmm. Right now, the only way I can look into Europe is by saying, how can we avoid the mistakes they made? Let's talk about avoiding mistakes they've made. We're drawing to a close here. I have two more questions for you. We've identified a problem, right? We have these this massive influx of immigrants coming into Europe. We don't really know how many. Uh, we don't really know where they are. And correspondingly, we see a massive increase in sexual violence. You consider two responses, what you call the right-wing populist response, which would be to expel illegal immigrants and restrict future Muslim immigration. This response, you say, is neither right nor practicable. The second response, radically reform European state systems of integrating immigrants. So if we could quickly go through both of those, starting with the first, expel illegal immigrants and restrict future Muslim immigration. Why is this neither right nor practicable? So the expelling and having a believable, a credible system of, you know, you don't want to integrate, okay, goodbye. Yeah. I think you have to have that system in place. Um, this is again a European story. It's not an American story. If you commit a crime in America, you are out. And it really doesn't matter that much whether there are Democrats in government or Republicans. In government. It really doesn't matter. That's set. All my liberal, 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 liberal friends who are left, far left, they all agree. If you rape a woman, you go to prison for a very long time. And when you're done, you go back to your damned country and we're not going to have you. That's how Americans talk. In other words, they've made their peace with the coming and going of people from different continents. You come to America, you want to have your dream, have it, but don't hurt someone else. If you do, you're out. Europeans haven't done that. And I don't know how they're going to do it because they've muddled it all up. There are international norms, um, like the 1952, uh, 1951-52 Convention of Asylum and Refugees, then in 67 that was updated, and then you had all of these European treaties. So the nation states, maybe what you could compare, and I hate to do that with the various states in America, but the nation states feel like that they're left out. Hmm. And they have no say over their own destiny when it comes to globalization, immigration, and those things. So you have a lot of angry people in Europe who are saying, I want to have a say. And the people that elect are telling them, go to Brussels. Yeah. Or, or Brussels calls the shots. And then they have no way of telling the people in Brussels, this is what I feel. So they have to figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe we in America have to help them figure that out because they are our greatest ally and you know you don't want Europe to go down the drain and maybe they know that so whatever um, 
why has America done a good job? And why should America's example be followed? Because America gets rid of that whole cloud of class. Um, it, it, doesn't, it really doesn't matter where I was born. I'm held to the standards of today. Uh, you show up at work, you do what you're supposed to do. Uh, you, you do your best to understand where things are, your colleagues, you don't complain. I know a lot of Americans, right now I can see a lot of people saying, but that's different now, there's the whole woke system. It's true that the woke stuff is happening. It's happening to us, it's, it's within us, it's come from us. But again, with the American way, it's just something you fight. Mm -hmm. You just fight it. Uh, you say we want academic freedom. We're going to fight for the First Amendment. We're going to fight to uphold our rules and laws and history. Uh, we're not going to let you bring down the statue of Lincoln and Washington and Frederick Douglass. You know, are you kidding me? We're not going to let that happen. And we're going to make a, a, a lot of noise. We're going to have a lot of confrontation which for a European is, the Europeans look at us and they think, oh my God, that's so crude. And so then they quietly let the statues drop yeah. or maybe quietly remove them. Maybe they quietly have their napkins in their laps and they have their little forks and knives and they quietly do away with their past, which I think is just wrong, hmm. plain wrong. And, and maybe the way to do it is the American way and get noisy and have that fight in America because it's an idea. You can be from India, like my friends Vivek Ramaswamy, Tungu Varadarajan, others, my African friends, Dambiza Moyo, I don't know. There are lots of us right there. There are Chinese friends. There are maybe, this is what's going to happen, wave after wave of immigrants who actually came for this stuff. We came for the idea of America. Uh, yeah, we'll be the ones who are gonna stand up and say, F off, we don't want this woke nonsense. If the Europeans could only succeed in getting their immigrants to a place where they would fight for those values, then they wouldn't have to worry. A friend of mine who immigrated to America and became a citizen likes to say it's become his job to do what native-born Americans won't do, defend our country. Yeah, yeah. So we'll defend it because we came for the idea of America. We feel I feel wholeheartedly American from the first day, whereas it took me, what, 14, 15 years to feel Dutch. Mm. Um, and even then they were still like complete, they were complicated about whether I am Dutch or not. Yeah. It's no American, Americans are just like, whatever. And I can have with my, I think of myself as a classical liberal, which in America is considered conservative. And I'll have the most passionate conversations with my American far left people. And at the end of it, we just go and have that hot dog and burger and fries. <laughs> and we're back yeah. to food. <laughs> back to food. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah.
Okay, um, Ayan, reforms. Um, the other option, if we're not going to expel immigrants and restrict future Muslim immigration in Europe, we need to radically reform the system. You identify six proposals for reform. Repeal the existing asylum framework, address the push factors, address the poll factors, reinstate the rule of law, listen to these successful immigrants, and provide sex education to all children. Um, would you like to comment on any of those? I think I'd like to comment on the first two, which takes um, all of these leaders who are telling us, oh, globalization, and they meet in Davos, and it's like, come on, then go take a room, sit together and talk about the next next wave and the next wave and the next wave of immigrants anticipated it's going to happen. Come on. That's one. The second is if all of these different countries who want immigrants and they do are going to style themselves as immigrant nations and immigrant states, then they have a lot to learn about America and the, and the state of Israel. And what America has done is you do have a justice system. We have in America a justice system. That's not perfect. And every so often the pendulum swings this way and that way. Uh, but the point is it is designed to absorb people from wherever they come from. And so if in, in America you want to make the point, sexual violence against women, rape, is not only wrong, we're gonna do something about it. We're gonna punish you. We're gonna put you in prison for the rest of your life. If you, if you do that, if you engage in that kind of crime, we'll explain it to you, but you can't do it. You'll have a lawyer, but you can't do that. The European system, systems of justice have never been adjusted to the new reality. Mm. So they will lecture you preach to you about diversity, inclusion, equity, bring people in. We're all a nation of immigrants, but none of the institutions have adapted to the reality. Mm -hmm. Not the justice system, not the education system, not the political system, not the, uh, the class system, which is still alive and thriving in that part of the world. And so how can you take them seriously when in fact none of the institutions have adapted? Yeah. And so with yeah. America, given all our problems, I still think you walk in today from, I don't know, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, that's where we get our unmanaged immigrants from. You get yourself into trouble. You will be punished according to the system. And then the buzz is going to be too all the people out there don't when you go to america don't engage in crime yeah if you do here are the consequences europeans need to get there but they are not there yeah. that's my last word on on this if you have time ion one last question and we've begun to pull on this thread i just want to give it a good yank right now you tell the story. <laughs> uh, you tell the story of a bangladeshi refugee in france who received a suspended sentence after raping a 15-year-old girl. It was his second yeah. offense 
having previously been charged with molesting an 18-year-old. His defense claimed he had been, quote, deeply influenced by the culture of his country, where women are delegated to the status of sexual object. And now I'm quoting Prey. During the hearing, a police person had to stand between the defendant and his interpreter as he shamelessly tried to grope her thighs in the courtroom. Nonetheless, he was put back onto the streets by the court. Again, he was deeply influenced by his country. One last quote, 1978, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. A decline in courage may be the most striking feature which an outside observer notices in the West in our days. Should one point out that from the ancient times, decline in courage has been considered the beginning of the end, end quote. So much of what I read in this book, Prey, seems to me a loss of courage in Europe, a loss of confidence in Western civilization and its principles. Is that what's going on? And can Europe recover that courage? That's what's going on. Absolutely. That's exactly what's going on. Uh, Solzhenitsyn was like that first wave. Um, he did come later, but you know, Europeans coming out of the curtain, joining other Europeans. So there wasn't such a, a difference in culture and religion and beliefs and all of that. But that's exactly what's going on. Um, there is no conviction. And because of the lack of conviction or the elasticity of conviction, hmm. um, marriage is compromised. Uh, you'll see that European, if you ever, I don't know how much time you spend there, but if you, if you were to um, bicycle on the wrong side of the road or on the sidewalk where you're not supposed to, citizens will immediately tell you that you're in the wrong. So they have that courage. Hmm. But when it comes to these big things that are going to shape the future of their continent, they, don't, they lack that courage because over and over they've been taught that their continent represents all things evil. And there has never been a balance about what it is that their continent did that was actually good for human civilization, for the diseases that, I mean, we live in the age of COVID um, vaccinations were invented there. The greatest economists come from Europe. The greatest scientists came from Europe. Um, colonialism wasn't all bad. There were some very good things of which I'm a profiteer of. I was, you know, as a, as a female in a Muslim society, I was sent to school by my father. Those are good things. So Europeans have only been told that one way street of that their history was just bad and awful. And that uh, after 1945, anyone who lived uh, after that period, they just have to atone and atone and atone. And they've been told nothing about what they should be proud of, what they should be grateful for, why they are different. And, and that's, uh, if you want, courage and the, convic the conviction of courage, you first of all have to have a conviction. And it's the system of conviction that's just watered down. There's no conviction. Oh, you're, you're embarrassed or you're extreme right. You're there, you're stuffy and old. You're, there's just, so, so they back away. 
and I guess that's been left to the Americans. Um, what is the future? Could they get it back? I think they can, because the, the period between at least 1945 to 1989, when many Europeans could retreat into their tortoise shells and pretend that the world was something that they didn't have to deal with, that period is gone. And so now they're having encounters with China, with Latin America, with Africa, with the Middle East, with even uh, fellow Westerners like Americans, Australians. I think they're now going to be forced into a place where they're going to think, maybe we have something to be proud of. Maybe that will pull them out of that shell. I hope, I pray, I'm not religious, but I pray that that will happen. Well, I hope and I pray as well. Ayan, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for your witness. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for all the fantastic work you're doing. And thank you for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thank you, Nino. Thank you for everything. Thank you for being so young and so (laughs) engaged and so wanting to fight this fight, even though I know you could go to Wall Street and make billions and lie down somewhere in the Caribbean. So thank you. Well, that doesn't sound like fun. I'd rather fight with you, Ayan. Thank you so much. Thank you. There you have it, Madisonians. Ayan Hirsi Ali on Prey. Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. The book is excellent. It's a thoroughly researched, frank discussion of a problem not many are willing to acknowledge or discuss, let alone try to resolve. I put a link to the book in the show notes, so be sure to order your copy and start reading today. We only scraped the surface in our conversation. Before we bring things to a close, I'd just like to remind you to please be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And if you've been enjoying these conversations, please leave us a five-star review. That does us a lot of good in helping to get the word about the podcast out to more people. That's a wrap for us today. Thanks so much for joining us. And I hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes.